Welcome to Travel Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Ace Cultural Tours. It's Artemis here, and for today's episode, I went to the offices of Orion Books in London, and I spoke to the journalist and author Luke Turner about his new book, Men at War, Loving, Lusting, Fighting, Remembering. As you'll hear, it's a book with a really refreshing take on the history of the Second World War. It moves beyond battles and planes, even though that's something that Luke is very knowledgeable about and passionate about. And it really seeks to recognise the men who fought in the Second World War as creatures of love, fear, hope and desire. Luke, thanks so much for joining us today on Travels Through Time. It's such a pleasure to meet you in person. This is really exciting for me to do an in-person interview. Fantastic. Thank you very much for having me on. Um, Well, I wanted to start by talking to you a bit about um, how you came to write this book, Men at War. Your last book, Out of the Woods, was a memoir and um, an exploration of coming to terms with your masculinity and your sexuality. And it kind of struck me as I was reading the book that this feels like a, a slight continuation of that in a way, grappling with some of those themes as well. H- how did you come to write it? Yeah, I think I I didn't want to do any more books about nature and um, forests and things like that. I felt I'd said all I needed to say in out of the woods and I guess that since writing that you know I don't think that was a I don't believe in sort of catharsis from writing memoir but I think it can shift your life on and how you feel about uh, issues around the self and I definitely felt I'd come more, come to terms with aspects of masculinity and felt more positive about masculinity ironically enough given the how, how masculinity is perceived at the moment and I was reflecting on a different side of myself which was possibly the the side of myself that kind of got obscured by a lot of the sexual um, confusion that I write about in Out of the Woods, which was this sort of quite childlike sense of self and loving aeroplanes uh, and ship battleships and being obsessed with the Second World War. And so as part of that process, I started interrogating that again. And I'd actually got back into building model aeroplanes um, in the, just sort of after writing Out of the Woods. When I think that's interesting, because I think that was part of feeling more comfortable in masculinity. I went back to doing something I'd done as a more confident boy, which which was strange to be doing in your 40s in a way. And so I started interrogating my obsession with the Second World War, realised it had never particularly gone away. It's always been there. It's been there long, you know, my job is writing about music and I love music. It was a life-changing force for me. But my obsession with with the Second World War is is longer. It's been going on for 40 years. You know, this is bigger than music, bigger than art and culture. And then my partner and I were trying for a child and I started thinking about what it would be to have a son as we knew he was going to be and in the context of war how would that make me feel about this obsession with the second world war would it make me feel awkward so the book was started out as a sort of questioning of that and I also had uh, got very fed up in recent years with how the second world war was used and exploited in subjects like Brexit and COVID-19 it was just sort of summoned as this national archetype and a very na- in a very narrow way about heroism and, and duty and service that I just felt wasn't right and I felt the war was more complicated and the people who lived it especially the men were more complicated than we were seeing them in society and I thought 
you know, my great thing with writing, I think, is about sexuality and fluid sexuality is to say that everybody is, exists on the grey scale of sexuality. And I wanted to look at the war and say, surely that was the case then. And surely in a time of total moral upheaval and societal upheaval, sexuality in the war was very fraught and complicated and actually quite rich. And that was, the, that's, that was what I set out to investigate, really. Some of, some of that was an unconscious setting out to investigate it, but now I've finished it, I realise that's what I was doing. Mm. So interesting. And, and I, I really enjoyed, that's one of the things that I really enjoyed about the book, is the kind of detail that you, or the time you take to really unpack young men like little boys young men and then men's obsession with war throughout the ages and you quote um antonia fraser um in in one of the chapters as long as men go to war and armies exist children will want to play with soldiers and i was wondering if having written the book and then reflecting on your childhood obsession with the second world war that's continued throughout your life do you feel differently about it now do you feel differently about that childhood obsession no that's the that's the thing. I thought it might put me off it and I'd regret it and want to leave that in childhood. But actually, I've got my big stash of model kits and I'm really itching to get on with them. But it's quite difficult with time having a baby. I even took my son to the uh, RAF Museum in Hendon to see what he made of it. And he really loved the Avro Lancaster. You know, I mean, he's only he was only like nine months then. So he was just pointing <laughs> at it going, da, da. So I, I, I hate to say it, but I didn't have a sort of... The journey wasn't some sort of anti-war revelation at all, far from it, really. And it's I, I, and I feel I, I, I think even more about those men, you know, and, and women who were around in the war, and I have even greater respect for them now, having done all of this research. And I, that's kind of why I like to talk about uh, the book, because there are just so many of these stories. I've only, you know, the, the tiniest fraction I've touched... In, in writing this book, it's, it's very few people. And if I've found these people in, in the last few years, there's so many other stories out there. And I just think it's still a very rich part of history, but a part of history that I would hope as a nation, particularly as a nation, as Britain or England, as I think it, we can reduce it down to sometimes, we start thinking about it in this more complex way. Uh, you, It definitely feels like a really interesting facet to understand human nature through if that's not too grand a statement because um one of the bits in the book that i really enjoyed is when you talked about when you write about rather um people's attitude towards sex during the war and that people would do things that they wouldn't they wouldn't usually do because they might die the next day and that's not just romantic there's actually something quite gritty and um uncomfortable about that um and i feel like maybe that's the same with the kind of violence and the coming to terms with the um, with the horror of war, but also being fascinated by it. it. It really feels like it taps into a kind of um, something, a truth about humanity that, yeah. Yeah, I think I, I think it was, it's interesting because you you, you can look at it in lots of ways. I think you can look at it as sort of like a, an anxiety that's leading people to, to a, a looser sexual morality, or you can see it as a liberation. You know, I, I really feel that the, 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 the cultural narrative we have is that the 60s were a time of sexual liberation. And I think that's a bit of the, one of these annoying baby boomer narratives about the 60s, which is actually not for everybody. You know, the, the 60s libera liberation, a lot of it was for a sort of cultural elite. You know, I know of friends, family would 
talk about um, she talks about her, her family being involved in sort of backstreet abortions in the Barbican area you know really grim stuff in the 60s because it hadn't reached that, that working class community this sort of supposed sexual liberation and of course that was I think it was a sexual liberation for privileged men and a few women gay liberation happened later um, and then was cut short by HIV AIDS um, crisis so I think the second world war was yeah it, it was the fear of death made people maybe want to have sex as a means of feeling alive but also maybe it's because the moral codes stripped away because the police didn't have as much time that again and again it comes up in uh, the record that the blackout was amazing because you could get up to all sorts and no one would catch you and so it's a sort of it's so complicated like you say it's, it's a part of human nature human nature is, is is to be complicated and and go against our what we're told to do and um, to re to react against our best interests and so on. So I wanted to really hold that up as being this uh, this sort of thorny, gritty, sometimes very unpleasant. You know, the, one of the characters I write about in the book is is pretty grim, um, a misogynist uh, soldier who treated women appallingly. And I, but I wanted to hold all that up and say, look, this this was a deeply complicated time and a very and again very rich. Mm. And and final thing that I wanted to ask you about before we we head to your chosen year, um, I was thinking a lot how it's become a bit of a cliche um, amongst particular people online to say um, men used to go to war now they and it's like a t-shirt with a rainbow on it or something you know like men used to go to war and now they do this thing that's perceived as kind of uh, woke. Uh, snowflake <laughs> type stuff and um, I kind of wondered what your take was on people evoking war in that context and I wondered if it was I sort of felt like perhaps there was a bit of it that would people say that if we still lived in a country for example where it was likely that men were going to go to war it feels like we're quite removed from that now so it's easier to say that that's something that we that men used to do I mean the hilarious thing is that it, uh, it was I quote it in the book there was a um, one of the right-wing papers some columnist going on about you know we we should send these woke snowflakes off to the front lines in Ukraine, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, but would they cope? They're not like the Second World War generation who were tough and strong. Now, if you read the what the generals of the British Army was writing to each other in panic in the early years of the war, they were saying like people like General Montgomery and General Allenbrook, who were you know very big figures in the British Army command structure, were writing to each other saying goodness me, these men we're getting for the army are hopeless, they've been made soft by cinema, dating, culture, music, dancing. The, they're not like the lads we had in the First World War. You know, and you just think this is a perennial problem. Uh, there's always going to be this view, you know, like God help us if there's a war is a sort of like a sort of jokey saying which you in, when you look at young people. And it's just, you know, it's like Pliny in his letters, I think, then he <laughs> writes about the kind of young people were dreadful. <laughs> you know, I just think this is a, a, a constant thing. I'm fairly sure that in the 1914 probably there was some generals going well they're not like the people they're not like the lads we had in the Boer War and in the Boer War there was probably people going they're not like the lads we had in the Crimean War and back to the Napoleonic Wars and forever and ever and ever so I, I actually felt that, that it, what I was trying to do was so a show a corrective to um, this sort of ridiculous view about um, snowflakes and, and, and woke people being weak and the fact that you have you know some of the people I write about who were incredibly brave and gay and, you know, it really strikes me that if you were, you know, gay men, uh, closet or not, would have been aware of what was happening to gay men in Nazi Germany. And you're not going to, if you're fighting against that, you're going to probably fight harder than 
in some cases than a heterosexual man because you've got more to lose if if the if the Nazis win you know hypothetically so I, yeah I do I find that kind of it's just like a total eye roll this sort of idea that young young people are really good at fighting for things um, and I you know would there be a war involving all of Britain where we're not just like <laughs> cooked in a flash of nu nuclear mushroom? Um, I'm not sure. But if, if there was a more conventional war that required a mass participation, I don't have any doubt that people would fight just as bravely as they did back in 1939 to 45. Mm -hmm. And it's a sort of anxiety about the decline or erosion of masculinity over the ages as well, isn't it? That fear of like, yeah, what... What will we do if there's a war? It's, it's very interesting. Luke, I'm going to ask you the question that we ask all of our guests on Travels Through Time, and that is, if you could travel through time, what year would you like to travel to? Well, I'm going to say... 1943, but with a caveat that I don't want to go back to the war. Uh, the war was horrible. Um, I write about it and my obsession with it, but I, I've not, I don't have any nostalgia for it. I, I've quite I, in the book. I'm quite critical of this sort of like fad for like 1940s parties and 1940s days on 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 steam railways. Much as I love steam railways and 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 things like that, uh, because it, 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 it why be nostalgic for a time that was so tough and so grim and bleak so I, if the time machine does drop me off in 1943 I might be a bit upset but we are going to go back to 1943 Exciting, well I think uh, a fascinating year to visit and and where are we going to be first for our first scene in 1943 we've stepped off the steam train maybe <laughs> uh, Well we'd have had to step off the steam train probably in Bridlington and then drive out in a truck to RAF Lissit which is a big RAF airfield was um, near the uh, East Yorkshire coast, um, North Sea coast, and it was where 158 Squadron were based um, for the large part of their existence during the Second World War. And they were a bomber command squadron flying, at this point, Halifax bombers on regular uh, operations over Germany and occupied Europe. And it's actually this, this week rather poignantly um one of the men i write about in the book bertram war uh was shot down and killed on a operation to essen which was the where the focus of the german krupp's armaments works were, were. and he failed to return on the night of third and third to the fourth uh, of april 1943 and you know, I, I went up this very strange place, RAF Lissick. So the, web, the internet told me there was not much of it left, but there actually is quite a lot. Uh, there's bits of runway, and it was very strange sort of standing there and you could imagining them taking off overhead, and I found it very powerful and moving. And so, yeah, that's the first, the first place and the first person we're going to go and visit. Mm. And before we go to that specific night, I mean, maybe we should um, meet Bertram. I mean, could you tell us a little bit about who he was and um, how he'd come to fight, um, how he'd come to fly in the war? Yeah, he was born in Canada and wanted to write. He'd done sort of various odd jobs, then did bits of journalism. And then in 19, uh, late 1938, he stowed away on an ocean liner uh, to come to Britain with a friend. Uh, they were caught 
the next day and made to like work their passage all the way over and arrived in early 1939. And he did various odd jobs, sort of working for an oyster dealers and, and sort of quite basic jobs uh, to, to keep going in London. And then he enrolled in, in Birkbeck College um, and was studying literature and writing. And so he was a poet. He started to get some acclaim for his work. Uh, Robert Graves said, uh, it is good to know there is a poet among us, and there are very few about his writing. And what I love about him is is the intensity of feeling in his writing. He's He reminds me of myself when I was sort of 18, 19. I mean, he was, a bit, he was in his early 20s at this point, but he has this sort of real desire to capture an essence of himself on, on, on the page, and he's very unselfconscious, but also utterly obsessed with kind of getting it out and getting it right like he writes with these dramatic flourishes and annotates his work and his and his poems are kind of they have this real energy because they're not the finished article he was a, definitely a poet in transition he was he was he was becoming he was finding his voice and so the poems are very intense sometimes they're a little bit hackneyed but they're all very very beautiful and he was a pacifist uh, and wrote essays about his pacifism and how a pacifist could operate in the war and how a pacifist could conform to the expectations of society and obviously really, really wrestled with this. Eventually, though, um, after some time being a fire watcher in a bit in London watching burning incendiaries to put them out, um, he did join the Royal Air Force Volunteer Reserve and joined Bomber Command, all of the Aircrew and Bomber Command were volunteers. And bizarrely, for a pacifist, became a bomb aimer, which I just find very interesting. He went from pacifism to being the person whose commands, alterations, of course, for the bomber, and then the decision of when to drop the bombs had terrible consequences for people on the ground. And I, I find that incredibly powerful journey... We don't really know why, what it was. Maybe it was seeing what happened in the Blitz, why he, why he made that decision. But he obviously caused him, I think, quite a lot of mental anguish because towards the end of his life, he was writing a lot about a, basically a death wish, I think. He, he said, I, you know, I'm writing this about a death my own, um, not by suicide. He, he felt that was um, not a way to die, but he, knew, he almost knew he was going to die on an operation. Mm -hmm. So I just found him just this sort of very recognisable figure who was 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 just so full of potential. And there were a lot of this interesting 158 Squadron who were based at RAF Lissett, who he flew with. There was loads of writers came out of that squadron, from memoirists to novelists to writers of uh, religious tracts of, of Christian and sort of uh, strange sort of multi-faith uh, tracts and he was the poet among them and so I, I, I wanted to focus on him to tell the story of that of those men and their bravery really. Yeah he is such an interesting character and that journey that you describe is um, is really powerful and I, I guess that's something that you kind of explore in the book that the this like kind of twisting that these men had to go through in, in themselves to be able to to uh, participate in a war and participate in the violence. And there's a bit in the book where you talk about kind of really intimate, the kind of um, hand-to-hand 
combat. Is that the right way of describing yeah, it? Hand yeah. to, you describe hand-to-hand combat and the what it might have felt like to actually kill a man um, with a bayonet, for example. Um, and it's really... It's, I think it's it's not something that we often think about when we think about the war, the psychological process that these men must have had to go through like Bertram to be able to kill other human beings. Exactly, and you've got that. That's why I wrote about the kind of killing with a bayonet and the aircraft right next to each other, two chaps next to each other, because because there's such different ways of, 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 of killing. Uh, one's so remote, up in the darkness, dropping bombs on a city, you don't know what on earth you're going to hit, really. They weren't very accurate. Uh, and then this very intimate, physical destruction of, an, of another human's masculinity. And it was in, I read, actually was reading a, a book just last week, which again is about a bomber crew. Uh, you know, one of these things you read slightly too late for putting it in. <laughs> but the writer there was talking about how for the men... Uh, he's right about it. it becomes a technical thing it becomes all about the machine if 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 the crew had had to think about what they were doing they wouldn't have been able to do it uh, it just became a matter of solving a, a technical problem which is how do you get this aircraft over a target on time and get home again and I thought that was a very interesting way of putting it and that kind of dovetails with what I'm talk about in the book about my own obsession with the machines and sort of as a kid not seeing the men as part of it not putting the men in the cockpit and so on mm-hmm. you mentioned um, his pacifism and that, that was something else I wanted to talk to you about because um, these tensions between like conscientious objectors and pacifists and then men who actively wanted to fight and sign up to fight and um, are kind of all on board for it and then this in-between role of someone who doesn't want to but is forced into a position where they are. Could you talk a little bit about that because I found that really interesting and particularly coming to terms with your own grandfather's um, pacifism and being a conscientious objector? Yeah that, that was one of the things that always slightly haunted me as a kid was my my granddad one of them was was a conscientious objector and I knew him he was a he was a sort of quite funny old boy you know very religious lots of these and thous at grace when you went round for dinner and to visit him but yeah he was a conscientious objector and because I was obsessed with the war and you know saw it as a necessary fight against Nazism I just didn't quite understand how he squared that with Christian belief which to my mind was about fighting evil and has quite a lot of war uh, in the particularly the old testament so I, I never really understood him being conscious objector and i was never i always was too afraid to ask i mean he was a lot you know that that thing you have when you're a kid you don't really want to interrogate your elders too much and also there was always that thing of people don't want to talk about the war people don't want to talk about the war and i think doing this book actually has made me really understand him in a different way. I know he had a terrible time, found out, you know, he really got a lot of abuse when he was doing his, you know, they got treated appallingly, conscientious objectors. And you can understand why, but it it was still horrific for them. And so I wanted in the book to, not necessarily particularly write about conscientious objectors in a big way, because then it becomes a book about pacifism and that's not what I wanted to do but about these kind of characters who who had a slippery journey there were a lot of men who made these complicated journeys from being anti-war into to joining up Dudley Cave who I write about he was pretty much a pacifist but then what he was hearing about the treatment of Jews in Germany that made him want to sign up and then I write about Henry Danton who was uh, pretty much indoctrinated into the military because his dad had been killed in the first world war before he was even born and that meant he got scholarship to these private schools which were literally about squeezing little boys into becoming soldiers and he ended up in the army but had just a colossal breakdown and couldn't fight and I was very lucky to interview him 
not long, well, a year before he died. And he he was very insistent that he wasn't a coward and he wasn't a conscientious objector. He just physio- physically couldn't fight. And I believe him. I, I don't have any trouble sort of think I, I, believing that there was a very genuine aspect to his makeup that meant he physically couldn't do it. Other people might just spell with that he was a coward. I, I don't agree. And I think, you know, if we go back to the, the memory of the war in Britain, this sort of like jingoistic martial idea of Britishness that the war sometimes is, is invoked in the name of, I think we've, if the war was fought for anything, it was for the right to conscientiously, conscientiously object. It was for the right for men like Henry Danton to say, I can't fight and not be shot for it. You know, I think that that's why the war was fought. It was it was for the the right to allow the right to be a pacifist, because mm. um, you know if you were fighting in the for the Germans, that was it. You, if you you couldn't be a conscientious objector, you'd be killed. The word that you just used there about squeezing these um, schools that are squeezing little boys into soldiers, it really, really had a, a powerful effect on me because that's kind of what happened to Bertram, wasn't it? That, that he was sort of squeezed and contorted into somebody who was then uh, able to go out and bomb. Yeah, but that's the thing with him is because he volunteered. That's he, he volunteered for Bomber Command. He didn't get put in Bomber Command. So there was a conscious decision to do that. He could have gone into a different part of the military where he wouldn't have had to do something quite so dramatically violent mm. to essentially to civilians. So that's what I, I, you know, that's the mystery in his life and in the record, as far as I can tell, is, you know, he wasn't forced to do that. He chose to do that. And I find that very, very interesting. And I wonder if that's why he did end up with this sort of desire to die or awareness of, of, of belief he was going to die. And just before we move on to our second scene that we're going to in 1943, I kind of just wanted you to tell listeners a little bit about the, the history after. It's the F. Freddy. Um, yeah. Yes. Could you talk a bit about that? Because I found that really fascinating. Yeah. So every squadron had code letters for all of its bombers, um, uh, alphabetical letters. And the bomber, uh, Halifax bomber that uh, Bertram Wall was shot down in was NPF. And that would be known as F for Freddy. And within a year, seven F Freddies were shot down from 158 Squadron. So it started to be seen as a cursed plane you know you didn't want to fly f freddy if you were in 158 squadron and actually one of the aircrew from 158 squadron later wrote a novel about this sort of superstition uh, and he changed it to s sugar um but so there was this huge hoodoo attached to f freddy and then about a year later i think after bertram had been shot down the the, the latest f freddy arrived and <laughs> one of the aircrew thought sod this superstition i'm going to make this plane the most unlucky plane imaginable and he renamed it Friday the 13th. And it had a death, a painting of death on the front with the, with the scythe and skull and crossbones. And it was just that he made it like unlucky as anything. And that aircraft survived the Second World War. It flew over 100 operations. Very few aircraft land, lasted that long. And it's just, it's just really strange. It's one of these odd, uncanny things that, that happen. You know, that, that aircraft, I mean, you don't want to say saved men's lives, but it got crews through their tours of operations, which you had a tiny chance of surviving in Bomber Command. And it, perhaps it, it tells you something about the psychology of warfare, you know, that how, or how important... I mean, maybe that's trying to assign too much meaning to something that 
perhaps it's essentially random, but something about lifting that curse by making the plane very unlucky and changing the mentality of the men who were getting into it every night. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's you do wonder, was if, but this, the fifth, sixth cruise going into... F. Freddy. I mean, I don't want to sort of. You, you, you have to be careful because you don't want to denigrate their mem- memory at all. But were they so anxious about this aircraft that they made silly mistakes that that cost their lives? Whereas, you know, going into the most unlucky aircraft, there's a, there's a bravado with that that maybe carried people through. It's very strange. It's one of those things where psychology, human basic psychology and chance and stuff slightly breaks down into something weirder. Mm. And Bomber Command crew were very suspi- uh, superstitious. I mean, they, they had lucky charms and lucky routines and all of this sort of stuff. They were incredibly superstitious uh, bunch. And Friday the 13th is, I think, the biggest <laughs> incarnation of that. Hello there, it's Peter here, and it's time for a word about our sponsors, Ace Cultural Tours. Ace are a much-loved and long-established business that are based in the award-winning Stapleford Granary Building just south of the University City of Cambridge. Now, these tours are split into categories like archaeology, art and architecture, houses and gardens, music, nature, and there are more than 100 of them setting off over the year ahead. Let me give you a flavour of just a few. In May, for instance, there's the Jewels of the Loire, medieval and Renaissance chateaus, an eight-day adventure into some stirring French architecture. Or, in June, you can join a trip to the spectacular Bach Festival in Leipzig, led by the expert tour director, Richard Wigmore. Or, if you fancy heading in the opposite direction, then in mid-July, there's a five-day archaeology tour to one of the most majestic Roman monuments in the whole British Isles. That's Hadrian's Wall. To find out more about any of these, and many, many more besides, I really do suggest that you explore their website at www.aceculturaltours.co.uk. It's the perfect place for the culturally curious. I'd like to go to our second scene now. We're going to meet some more pilots. Um, Could you tell us a bit about where we are for our second scene? If we were in a specific place, for example, where would we be? Well, we're leaving windy, damp East Yorkshire to go to the hot Mediterranean just off the coast of uh, North Africa. Now, we don't know the exact place because it was over the sea, but the date is the 16th of April, 1943. And... You know, people like to talk about the Spitfire being an iconic aircraft of the Second World War, which I, I guess it is, but that's a, it's an overused word, that iconic. But it's an a iconic Spitfire swooping in to attack some German transport aircraft, but then getting attacked itself. Mm. And um, I kind of wanted to talk a bit about RAF pilots specifically, because there, there is a sort of um, a glamour and a sex appeal, I'd say, attached to them perhaps more than others. Why do you why do you think that is? What is it about? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was the the sort of thing when I was a kid. It was they just you know soldiers was just sort of <laughs> mud and <laughs> grimness. Whereas the RAF, because a lot of it's propaganda, you know, very good marketing during the war. Cecil Beaton taking photographs of these incredibly handsome young men. A lot of they're amazing of, coats. As yeah, well. yeah. I mean, they had a sort of slightly relaxed dress code, really. So you had your really nice, nice leather jackets, scarves. They called them the Brill Cream Boys because they had their hair a bit like mine, <laughs> sort of swept back and greased. And 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 a lot of it's to do with class because at the start of the war the RAF 
SAF was very much dominated by private public school boys, so they had this sort of confidence and everything. That obviously changed as the war went on. But the propaganda during the war was very effective at publishing sort of uh, these pamphlets that made it look very exciting. And it was the latest technology, and it was you know incredibly romantic. The idea you're in these these planes that go very fast and take to the skies, and they're very they look very beautiful, even even the bombers. And so there was a real sort of glamorous male archetype around the RAF uh, flyers, which you know then extends all the way through the war films that I grew up with. It was just so present in in my obsession as a kid. Um, they were very you know dashing, very sexy. They I mean one of the even even the bomber pilots were seen as as, as sexy. You know that one of the 158 squadron pilots I write about talks about how the incredible death rate among bomber command aircrew where you have you know it was it was the most dangerous part of the services to be in actually made them sexually attractive that was that gave them a this sort of allure and and i think the schizophrenic lifestyle where you're up on an operation whether you're a fighter pilot in the battle of britain intercepting german bombers or you're flying out to germany and back in bomber command and then you're back in england and you can go to the pub and you can go to a dance you know not like a soldier overseas for years, they're very present in life, mm-hmm. uh, in in the life of the area around their operational, uh, around their airfields. So they were these sort of very sexy, romantic figures, and that has totally endured to the present day. I think. And that leads us on really nicely, I think, to the character, our main sort of character that we're meeting in our second scene. Would you like to tell us who we're who we're with? Yeah. So Ian Gleed was very much one of these chaps. You know, very chaps is the right <laughs> word to use. You know, he, he he was a sort of pre-war member of the RAF, quite well to. Do had had flying lessons as a as a kid, uh, well t- teenager at an airfield near where I used to live, where I used to go to air shows, and he was the archetypal hero, air hero. He was very suave. In the Battle of France, he became the fastest ace in RAF history. And an ace is when you shoot down five enemy aircraft, and I think he did it in three or four days in the Battle of France, which was quite astonishing. Uh, he, he shot down more aircraft in the Battle of Britain. He wasn't a Spitfire pilot then, he was flying a Hurricane, which was the sort of slightly lesser, less iconic <laughs> aircraft. Um, and he got very quickly promoted and eventually became a wing leader. Um, and he, he ended up in sort of doing desk duties, but got very bored and was asked, uh, asked to be posted to the uh, Mediterranean where there was a lot of fighting going on. And that was where he got shot down and killed in April 1943, mm. flying a Spitfire at that point. And I wanted to talk a bit about his memoir um, that you write about in the book, um, A Rise to Conquer, um, because in that, really interestingly, he writes about his girlfriend, but we know that his girlfriend didn't exist. He was probably, in fact, he was writing about his boyfriend instead. Yeah, could you talk a bit about that? Yeah, so his, yeah, Rise to Conquer is is exactly the sort of book I'd have loved as a kid. It's all like rat-a-tat-tat, whizzo, you know, sort of like proper <laughs> proper kind of adventure stuff, you know, about his, his life flying. And it was, you know, it was published in, I think, 42, 41, 42. So it was a very fresh memoir. But as you say, he writes about Pam all the time, you know, thinking of Pam, calling Pam. Pam is everywhere, the girlfriend. And his family were very confused because they'd never met Pam, even though that they would the book said they had and he said that Pam was put in there to give some spice uh, for the lads and the squadron at the encouragement of the publisher but what's very strange is that in a biography that was written of Ian Gleed many years later 
there is a Pam figure who is a much younger man who was his companion, basically doing all the things that Pam does in the book, like going sailing in this boat, the spindrift, uh, all the companionship and everything, is this man. Uh, on the last night before he, Ian Glee, goes out to the Mediterranean, he has dinner with this young man. And the audit biographer never sort of says they were obviously lovers. But when you put that in the, f- in the context of an interview that was on a a documentary on TV in the late 90s called It's Not Unusual, where fellow pilot called Christopher Gotch talks about how he had sex with Ian Gleed, who was his commanding officer at Middle Wallop uh, Airfield. Which is, <laughs> you know, illicit gay sex at Middle Wallop is <laughs> it's, it's marvellous, really. Uh, and so, you know, and it was, it's, it's interesting because, you know, I he very much outed Ian Gleed uh, on that TV programme and I think sort of removed some of the moral quandary I had about outing people from the past uh, by it already being out there and I think you could just join the dots and, and know that this young man that he writes about uh, that the biographer writes about must be his lover I mean uh, at one point Ian Gleed is, has this brilliant idea of taking a detachment of aircraft down to the Isles of Scilly so they can intercept German aircraft German bombers coming in more quickly and while he's there he's like borrowing a two-seater aircraft to fly back to Britain to pick up his young friend uh, and flying back so they can go sailing together. And I just can't see how the rest of his comrades out there on the Silly Isles didn't know that this was a love affair. I mean, you know, was it, what was he pretending? This, this guy wasn't in the RAF. Uh, he was just a civilian. Why, why else? I mean, maybe he pretended he was, oh, he's my deck hand, he sails with me mm. or something. So I thought, I, I just find it very fascinating because he is such a classic... Battle of Britain warrior, so sort of dashing, uh, handsome, with his silk scarf and, you know, all, all of this, got decorated by the king, you know, uh, had the DSO, DFC, Croix de Guerre from the French, but was a gay man. And what do you think the, what do you think people did make of it? I mean, I wonder if, could we... I wonder if it is something to do with that sense of things being allowed in a way that they wouldn't during peacetime. But you also talk in the book about how there's a particularly heightened anxiety about masculinity or about the the kind of the effemininity of gay men being threatening to the war effort in some way. So it's kind of an interesting, yeah, it's interesting that no one said anything. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that was from the higher commands felt that uh, gay men were a threat to the war effort. It was some of the higher command thought that because, uh, you know, Dud- Dudley Cave, who I write about, who was a gay soldier, he he felt, uh, was very angry after the war because he felt the army authorities had been very aware of gay men and they just needed the manpower so they turned a blind eye to it. And then after the war, you know, it was persecuting gay men in the military again. So I think it's a complicated picture because there were all these edicts and, and orders and sort of rules, if you, you know, prosecuting men for sodomy and it was all based on the articles of war from hundreds of years earlier. It was an incredibly homophobic military power structure that was imposed on gay men but there were so few there were less than 2,000 court-martials in, in the war for sodomy and in my book, if, you, if I counted up the number of gay sexual encounters that were referred to, we'd be getting on for a couple of hundred. And that's just in my, my book. So there was obviously a lot going on. So I do think among, and you get a sense in the, some of the accounts I write about that there was a tolerance for it or an understanding. And I even, you know, there was one guy I write about who his lover on a squadron was shot down and killed. And the commanding officer of the squadron 
called him into his office to tell him personally because he knew they were lovers and wanted him to find out directly from him as you know he found out before the man's family and so there obviously was a blind eye turned to it because I think there was a sense of well actually we're all fighting here this doesn't seem to be affecting your ability to fight so why do I care and I think that's very interesting it shows that there was a, 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 a something very progressive going on and obviously it's not blanket there was obviously must have been gay bashings sort of people's lives ruined blackmail all sorts of horrible things happening to gay you know and i would say and bisexual men uh, in the in the military during the second world war but it does strike me that there was this sort of atmosphere of tolerance and, and something changing that is very hard to quantify you know that in research because it's not documented mm. it's not even the sort of thing people necessarily would have written about in their memoirs unless they were the gay men or everything comes from the gay men who after the war were out mm. like Christopher Gotch talking about Ian Glead like Dudley Cave like Peter de Rome these men I write about the, these men who wrote memoirs uh, about their gay lives during the war but then there's this silence from everyone else who was involved or turned a blind eye or participated and I find that very fascinating absolutely and I think it in other periods not just in this one you often or sometimes you do come across sources where that you meet you meet these people these characters who are gay or bisexual and there is a sense that the people in their lives who know them and love them it doesn't it kind of it doesn't doesn't matter i mean i'm thinking of this is not um different period but i'm fascinated by Anne lister the lesbian um she was lived in yorkshire and mm. the, and her and her, and she wrote very explicitly about her attraction and love for women in a very frank way and you do get the uh, impression that it's kind of just tolerated like and not just tolerated in a but people just accept that that's who she is yeah i mean it's i mean it's the same i was, I was very keen to write about gender fluidity in the book as well uh, and enid broad um who i write about i found her through mass observation the kind of citizen diary project that the government uh, that ran during the war she i mean i call her she because she called herself she but very much identified as a man as much as a woman only shopped in men's outfitters did her hair like a man and i found out just at the end of finishing the book from a very obscure local history photo album that she, when she was uh, in the women's land army in cambridgeshire she liked to be called john and it's interesting in the book she wrote uh about being in the Women's Land Army. It's an amazing bit of nature writing. I really hope somebody republishes. It's called Set My Hand Upon the Plough. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. And she's always referred to as mate or a, a, a cowman and pal and all this sort of stuff. She gets called Miss once. And, you know, in the Second World War, women are always called Miss. And she really never is. And there's pictures of her with a gun. She looks like she's in the French resist a man in the French resistance. She's brilliant. And I, obviously she was, she was living there with her female partner in this village. And it... She doesn't make any reference to anything. Um, I mean, I guess she wouldn't have done, but I get the impression that she was able to live pretty much as a man with a woman in the middle of Cambridgeshire and possibly people didn't bat an eyelid. Mm. Mm. Sort of more existential and pressing things at hand, maybe, I don't know, that people felt like... But that's the yeah. thing, yeah. Why, 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 would, why would you be worrying about what people were doing sexually if many of your loved ones are out fighting your entire life is geared to the war effort mm. you're in a world of propaganda and you know not trusting it and worrying worrying constantly you haven't got enough food I think maybe being judgmental about people's sexuality is the last thing you're gonna gonna do and people being thrown together in this way you know it did have a big impact in class like my granddad wrote a lot my other granddad who wasn't a pacifist went out to um, West Africa and he he's writing a lot about 
being suddenly being around posh people and and all of this sort of stuff, which was very alien to him. But everybody getting along, and I wonder if the same thing happened around sexuality. Mm. Uh, and uh, and there there was this sort of a more slippery time. I'd like to go to our third and final scene in 1943. Now um, we're leaving um, the UK. Would you like to tell us where we are? So we are in Italy, a couple of hundred miles north of the Allied lines, and we're in a stone farmhouse probably, surrounded by vineyards, quite beautiful landscape. And who are we with? Would you like to introduce us to our final two characters? We're with Dan Bellany and David Dowie, who together wrote this incredibly, I think, pioneering, radical book called The Cage. And how did they come to write it? So Dan Bellany was a working class Hull kid who was worked his way up self-educating and became a teacher. Again, wasn't particularly keen on war and being in the army, but joined up. Eventually was sent to North Africa and he was captured by the Germans and put into uh, a sort of holding camp in Italy, prisoner of war camp. And so in, in this prisoner of war camp, he met David Dowie. Now, Dan Bellini was gay, and he, he'd written about sexuality previously. He'd become a writer as well as a teacher. And he really fell in love with David Dowie. And The Cage is this remarkable book that they wrote together about prisoner of war life. It's got all the things you'd expect from a prisoner of war novel, the privations, the banter, the boredom, all of that sort of stuff. But within that, there is a frustrated love affair with a man who is in love with another man. And it's obviously modelled on their own relationship. But what they do is create a third character called Alan, who is this sort of quite incredibly needy, vulnerable man who's in love with David Dowie. And Dan is the kind of go-between, trying to sort out this difficult situation. And the invented Alan is always giving David his uh, his food and just re- desperate to be talking with him and like wants to, just can't bear with it being without him and the thought of them being separated in the prison of all camp. So it's a really electric book. And it does reflect what happened in real life, which was that Dan Bellany was in love with David Dowie. He would write these very painful letters to his sister saying that you know you don't you shouldn't marry this guy who you're dating assassinate this bloke's character (laughs) brutally and then go on about David Dowie I really want you to meet him and it's just so painful because he was in love with this man but he knew it was doomed he just thought maybe if my sister marries him then they then then I'll be close to him and it's just the intensity of this relationship comes across both in Dan Bellany's letters and in this strange fictionalised version where the Dan character is the, the kind of exterior to the relationship and, and, and all the kind of unhappiness is in the Alan character. And it's almost like that sort of seems to be quite symbolic of the way gay men had to split themselves in half at that time. But what's very interesting is that if David Dowie had really struggled with this infatuation to the extent that it was that infernally annoying, I think he would have utterly rejected Dan Bellany instead of writing a book with him. I mean, writing, writing a book about this really weird situation in a prisoner of war camp would have been so strange. Um, so they obviously found some form of understanding 
about this, what they were going through and what was happening. And after the Italians surrendered in 1943, they kind of all just wandered out. All the prisoners just sort of left their prisoner of war camp, wandered into the countryside. And Dan uh, Bellini and David Dowie hid with an uh, Italian family who sheltered them. And they, as, they, as they were sheltered there, they uh, finished off this novel, um, which they wanted to be called For You, The War Is Over, um, but they ended up being called uh, The Cage. And at some point in the autumn of 1943, they finished the book. I think they just stayed purely to finish this book. They left the manuscript with this Italian family, farmer family, al- along with another book Dan Billing had written called The Trap, which was about um, his journey in the military uh, and being captured. And they set out south towards the Italian, towards the Allied front lines, and nobody ever saw them ever again. They disappeared. And it's just such a beautiful tragic story nobody knows what happened and had amazing conversations with Dan Bellini's niece who was the daughter of the woman who Dan Bellini really wanted to marry David Dowie and her mum had very much kept the memory of Dan Bellini alive and it had had a huge impact on her life she and I think she was a bit of a hippie was involved with Glastonbury in the early days so he lived on through her and she believes that they were in a relationship but when they died of some sort, but we'll, we'll we'll never know. You know, their their bodies. Who knows whether they got caught and shot, or died of exposure, which happened to a lot of men. There was a a letter one of their fellow prisoners wrote to Dan Billini's father, saying, "I I've heard of a few men being found clasped together to defend themselves from exposure, and I imagine that as, as though too, because that seems to sum up their relationship. And it's just such a poignant story. I find it really moving and, and just very beautiful. That It has all the tragedy of, of gay love at that time because it's so complicated and thorny, and who knows if they'd made it back, how Dan Bellini would have resolved his love for David Dowie. I, I don't, if, if they weren't in a relationship... What would have happened? So it just ends in, just disappears into the it- Italian uh, countryside. And uh, thankfully, these books survived and were published. And a very little, very little known um, book, the, the Cage. But I, I found it very late on in writing the book, and it just blew me away. And I thought I have to in, put a chapter on these two men in because it's such a beautiful, poignant story. Mm, it's incredibly moving. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling very moved, like listening to you describe it. The Novels and and kind of works of fiction are quite a large, um, make up a large proportion of your source material for the book. And I was really interested in that because there is a certain degree of having to, um, you know, read through the lines a little bit. I mean, in in The Cage, they've helpfully kind of named the characters after themselves. So it doesn't take a genius to (laughs) figure out um, who they might be talking about. But um, not just with The Cage, but with other sources that you used, how much reading between the lines did you have to do? I mean, a lot, really, um, because there's so little... I mean, if you went off the kind of official sources, there's, you know, Admiralty fleet orders and things like that, and I'm, I'm not a historian, and all the archives were shut, so I couldn't sit there ploughing through disciplinary records of uh, units and so on. But my view with the book was very much that the war is a cultural super hyper object in the past and we can look at it through culture and so many of these novels are pretty much auto fiction anyway and it's interesting now that auto for contemporary auto fiction is having a sort of massive moment and I think the second world war was quite a pioneering time for auto fiction so a lot of these novels that people wrote are so close to what actually happened and particularly Dan, Dan Bellini's both the books the, the trap and the cage you know the, the 
if you compare them to his letters, the same stuff is happening. And the, this, the, as I say, the, there was the, one of their fellow prisoners basically said, yes, everything in this book is true, except for the invented character, Alan, who seemed to have a lot of damn villainy in him. And so I, I, I felt that why, why not use, you know, the, our cultural memory of the war in Britain is shaped by hero, heroism of war films and, and, and myth and the Dambusters and the Battle of Britain and all these narratives that come through. I thought, why not use fiction or what is often very thinly disguised memoir as a source material? Because a lot of the time it, people had to use fi- slightly fictionalised things probably to escape certain moral codes and rules and things you possibly couldn't say in 1950s Britain. I mean, the gay men I write about, you know, that they were very frank and, it, and, and it's not fictionalised you know, apart from Dan Bellany, you know, the Dudley Cave, Peter Jerome, Quentin Crisp, you know, they all wrote memoir, that's all, you know, think, things that, that happened to them. But I, I find the fiction seemed to be appropriate for how the war is, the, the memory of it is 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 elusive these days and actually i think fiction can fix it in a a more interesting way than so it's odd it's an elusive memory in in the cultural in our society but it's one that as it is slippery becomes used for sort of quite conservative ends and quite right-wing ends and quite uh, you know culture war uh, ends and i wanted to use fiction and all these other sources to say actually no it wasn't like that Absolutely. One final question that I wanted to ask you before we head back to the present is about this peculiarly British uh, attitude towards war and particularly how that relates to masculinity. And I wanted to ask you, how does that contrast perhaps to the experience of men in France and Germany, who obviously had a very different experience of being invaded or defeated kind of at home? How is that different to Britain? Yeah, I mean, the book is very specifically British because I wanted to you know, you take your masculinity into war from the country you're from with all the awareness and knowledge of it. I mean, there are obviously in Germany a lot of men who were totally indoctrinated by the hyper-masculine ideals of Nazism, particularly the younger men who'd, you know, been sort of brainwashed since childhood with Nazi ideology and the SS was a sort of different level of masculinity to, to the to other bits of the uh, German services. The French... I don't. I don't really know because I didn't sort of refer to it. I guess the Americans is a is a big one. You know, the, the, there was the great fear in Britain of American masculinity because it was well, over 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 sex overpaid and over here there was that sort of insecurity about Americans having sex with your sweetheart back home because he had chocolate was paid well had nice tights and all this sort of stuff. Um, and and then there's the racial element as well. You know, I was very aware that I can write about British repressed sexuality because that's sort of my life experience. And there is really a brilliant scholarship coming out about non-white servicemen in the Allied forces, but I felt it wasn't my place to tell their story because I can't, I've never experienced racism, so I can't, I felt I couldn't, on a book that is intensely personal as well as being general, I couldn't write about their experience. And so they had an entirely different experience to anyone else. And in some ways there were positive aspects about Britain with that, you know, I read again and again when non-white men were allowed in, you know, the RAF had a racist colour bar until the start of the war and then they abandoned it because it realised that 
that we, when you've got a massive empire that you actually need these p- people to come and fight and you shouldn't be racist anymore you know if needs must it's mm. terrible really but Convenient. you ended up yeah exactly and it, you ended up with non-white men in, in bomber command air crews some of whom like Ulrich Cross uh, from the Caribbean did like uh, over 80 missions in Pathfinder aircraft which was you know, incredibly dangerous and, you know, really, really brave man. And in a lot of these accounts, you hear about black servicemen being in the pub with their British white comrades and Americans would come in and start giving racist abuse or saying, why is that person using a different word here? And then there'd be big fistfights between the British and the Americans and the British were standing up for their black comrade. And obviously I'm not painting a sort of pretty picture of Britain in, in the war, Um, There was obviously still lots of racism, but it was definitely complicated when it it came to the sort of tensions between the white Americans and the black servicemen. So I I just think that's that's the thing. Every country is different. I I think there should be a sort of a men at war, a book like this, along very similar lines for every country. Mm. Because I I can't, you know, at one point I thought, can I write about masculinity in a wider way? And I thought, well, no, I can't. I don't, I mean, I, I can't even understand what it is to be an American man let alone a German or a French or a Soviet mm, Soviet mm. person Well before we um, before we get back on our uh, steam train back to 2023 <laughs> <laughs> if you'll um, permit me to be so twee about it you're allowed to bring back a memento with you do you know what memento you'd like to bring So I've, I, my memento is actually already in the RAF museum at Hendon you can go and look at it uh, and it is the cockpit door from Ian Gleed's Hurricane. Not obviously not the not Spitfire he was shot down in, um, but the one of the Hurricanes he flew. So it's a, it's a green piece square of metal. And I write about metal in the book a lot because it ties into this sort of fascination with war machines and love of military museums and so on. And this is a particularly poignant bit of metal, just a little square. And on it is the a painting of Figaro. The cat from I think Mickey Mouse or a Disney film. I'm not. I'm not sure what one Disney thing, and it's this cat clawing a swastika with bloody claws, and it's a really cool image. And that Ian Gleed had that painted on every aircraft he flew, and they called all of his aircraft Figaro. So I, I thought, and I love that, that there's this sort of innocuous little. It's quite hidden away at the RAF museum. Just this little square of metal, but behind it is this incredible story of a gay man who was uh, a proper warrior. You know, there was no, and he really disproves this idea that gay men can't be brave and can't fight. Uh, and and so on. So I, I, that's what I would re- remember because it was that was around in 1943 somewhere in a storage place. And now you can go and look at it up in Hendon. Amazing! I love that one. Well, Luke, thanks so much for joining us on Travels Through Time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks very much. That was me, Artemis Irvin, speaking to Luke Turner about his new book, Men at War, which is published by Orion and is available to buy this week. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, Remember, you can head over to our website for more information about this episode and any of our others. Until next week, goodbye.